can open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, and the text is printed in the bulletin on the next page for you also. Um, so we've been going through the book of Acts for several weeks now, uh, which is a record of the things that the, the risen Lord Jesus continued to do and teach um, on earth through his spirit and uh, by his word, uh, through his apostles, even after he was taken up into heaven. And so far in Acts, we've seen his purpose or his mission in the world uh, to extend his kingdom and his salvation to all peoples. We've seen the effects of Jesus pouring out his spirit on his followers at Pentecost, uh, enabling them to testify to his resurrection, testify to his grace. We've seen the kind of loving fellowship that is wrought by the spirit, Uh, the power of Jesus' name to save and restore believers, and the courage that he gives us to proclaim the gospel. And um, today we'll see what happens when the Holy Spirit gets ticked. Um, Actually, we'll look at more than that, but uh, let's just address the obvious up front. Um, This is a very difficult part of the Bible for uh, modern audiences. As we get into Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, God comes across as pretty severe here. Uh, You've got to commend Luke for being an honest historian. Uh, He's not just painting a rosy, romantic picture of the early church, right? Um, But maybe look at it from this angle. Those who might complain about God's severity here are often the same people who complain that the church is full of hypocrites, and um, use that as an excuse to disbelieve Christianity. Don't like hypocrites, eh? Neither does God. Uh, Maybe you'll get along after all. (laughs) Uh, God takes hypocrisy seriously, as we'll see uh, in our text. He takes it very seriously, and we should take God seriously. So let's pray, and then we'll read uh, from Acts. Lord Jesus, there are some good things in this passage and some hard things, and we pray that um, that you would overcome any resistance that we might have to receiving your word. We need your help. We need the spirit to fill our lives, uh, our hearts. We need our minds to be transformed uh, by your word, and so uh, we humble ourselves before you and um, pray that you would prepare us to receive your word and to be changed by it. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who you have buried, who have buried your husband, are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. first thing that Luke does for us here is to uh, record sort of a summary uh, pattern um, of the life of the early church. If you remember from last week, the apostles had begun to experience persecution for preaching the gospel, right, for the first time, and they, they prayed for God's help, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the text said. And, and last week, I said that one uh, immediate effect of being filled with the Spirit, each time Luke uses that particular phrase in his gospel or in the book of Acts, is that um, the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed boldly, uh, even in the face of opposition. Another effect of the Holy Spirit filling God's people is the effect he has on their love for one another, the way they take care of one another, as we see in our text this morning. Verse 3, Chapter 4, verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So all the believers were of one heart and soul. That's fairly remarkable considering the rapid growth um, that the church had been experiencing. The regular experience is the more people you get together, especially the more quickly you get people together, uh, the more division or dissension there's likely to be, right? But there's a spiritual unity, there's a spiritual love that characterizes the church in this passage. And that true community is expressed here in sacrificial generosity. Actually, Luke's already shown us this aspect of the spirit-filled life of the church in Acts chapter 2. He said that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this sharing that they were doing was not compulsory. It was entirely voluntary, and it arose from truly thankful and generous hearts. Something had happened to these people that made them want to give up their stuff in order to help their fellow believers who had need. And in our 
text this morning, verses 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. <clears throat> so it's, it's reminiscent of our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 15. I'll read some of that again. Verse 4, there will be no poor among you. And down to verse 7, if, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And in verse 10, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So finally, this seems to be playing itself out, right, among God's people. Of about uh, probably an estimated 10,000 or so uh, new believers, Luke writes that there was not a needy person among them. And it was because of people like Joe, right? Um, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is set forth by Luke as a really great example. I mean, hardly anybody in the scriptures has the kind of reputation that Barnabas does, right? Um, he's someone who totally loves Jesus. He's totally genuine, um, bought in to the mission of the church, uh, sacrificially generous. And he's given his whole life in response to the gospel. And um, commentator I. Howard Marshall calls Barnabas a Christian leader conspicuous for his sheer goodness. Selling a piece of land back then uh, would have had more significance probably than selling a piece of land now. Uh, really, it it would have been more like selling a profitable business that could have generated income for the family for a few generations. So Barnabas happily placed this costly gift at God's disposal. Laying it at the apostles' feet was representative of the fact that he was giving this gift to a person. He was giving this gift to Jesus himself, who is the head of the church. And he took a big financial hit in order to love Jesus, and in order to love the church. John Calvin says, we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We in our day are content not just jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. They sold their own possessions in those days, in our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. He wrote 400 years ago, 500 years ago. Um, that's still true. Um, Barnabas is what we would call good people, right? His generosity is admirable, and it is worthy of our imitation. And now, unfortunately, we come to the tough bit. Luke contrasts 
the good illustration of Barnabas with the bad illustration of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, who, it seemed, wanted the reputation of Barnabas without having to truly sacrifice the same way that he did. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter makes it clear that um, actually selling possessions or land was not required. It was voluntary. Didn't it belong to you? After you sold it, didn't it, did the proceeds still belong to you? Right? The field belonged to Ananias. He didn't have to sell it. And after he sold it, all the money rightfully belonged to him. He didn't have to give it to the church. And if he did give it to the church, he didn't have to give all of it. So the problem clearly isn't ultimately with um, the fact that he kept back some of the proceeds. Maybe uh, it's not ultimately because of greed on his part. The problem is that he kept back some of the proceeds but wanted everyone to think that he had given all the proceeds. Uh, This wasn't some accounting mistake. He agreed on it with his wife. He contrived this deed in his heart. Whether he actively promoted the view that he had actually given all the proceeds or he passively allowed that to be assumed by others because that's just what everybody else was doing, um, he was dishonest in the pursuit of a good reputation. You can almost imagine um, his false modesty. Oh, well, I'm just a humble servant, you know. Selling the field was really nothing. I'm just doing my part like good old Barnabas here. Why, I really didn't mean to call attention to myself. But obviously he wanted people to think of him like they thought of Barnabas. He was claiming to have done more than he did, exalting himself by deceiving others about his goodness. John Stott said of... uh, of Ananias and his wife. They lacked integrity, bringing only a part while pretending to bring the whole. They wanted the credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Peter detects this. Uh, He detects that Satan, the great liar, has been at work in Ananias. Satan has filled his heart. Alan Thompson, uh, another commentator, says, Rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking the word of God, Ananias is filled with Satan and speaks not the word of God but lies, 
specifically alive to the Holy Spirit. Now, it's, it's pretty interesting that um, Peter exposes Ananias' lie, and he says, you've not lied to man, but to God, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, he actually did lie to man, right? The apostles, he lied to the church. And in doing that, he worked against true fellowship, against uh, true intimacy for the sake of building himself up in the estimation of others, right? by creating an illusion of himself as better than he was. God is at work in the church to create a community of true love which requires transparency and genuine concern for one another. And Ananias uh, worked to ruin that. When Ananias sought to deceive the church, he was trying to slip one past the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So yeah, God's pretty serious about what he's doing in the church, the kind of community he's creating that reflects his his glory and his grace. And when hypocrisy and deceit and lies would undermine that, when Ananias heard Peter's words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. John Stott says that uh, God hates hypocrisy. Luke has recorded Jesus' denunciation of it, together with his warning that those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit in deliberate defiance of known truth will not be forgiven. So that's not to say that every time someone sins or is a hypocrite, it's instant death for them. And it's not to say that whenever Christians are suffering, that must be a punishment for their sin or for their hypocrisy. But there are several examples in Scripture of people suffering loss of health or even life because of the sins they're committing in the church. First Corinthians 11, Paul wrote, Anyone who eats and drinks talking about communion, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. In that context, he's talking about how disrespectful the the Corinthians are to one another at the Lord's Supper because they're making distinctions between themselves based on things like social class or wealth or friendships or Uh, knowledge, education type stuff, right? They're making distinctions between one another uh, based on earthly things so that they can feel good about themselves and have a better place at the table. They were sinning against the body of Christ in a self-serving, self-promoting way, and they didn't see how that was a sin against Christ himself as they were partaking of his body and his blood in communion. They failed to make the connection 
between their respect for their fellow believers in the church and their respect for Jesus, who is the head of the church. They were eating and drinking God's judgment on themselves, God's judgment. And they were getting sick and dying. And that's pretty similar to what uh, happened to Ananias and Sapphira. David Peterson, another commentator, said, Ananias and Sapphira disregarded the presence of God in the Christian community, the sacredness of that fellowship in God's eyes, and the relational aspect of their sin. They failed to discern that a deliberate act of deceit against the church was a sin against the Lord of the church. It wasn't just Ananias, unfortunately. It was his wife also. The text makes clear uh, several times that they had conspired together. And Peter gives Sapphira a chance to repent when she comes back in. Did I do that? Is that what did I do even? <laughs> um, it says this, starting in verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down dead at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. So surely, when Peter asked her, was it for so much that you sold that piece of property? She must have been aware that she was under scrutiny. <laughs> now is her chance to come clean and fess up. But she doesn't, and Peter knows that she has agreed together with Ananias to test the spirit of the Lord. And the Greek word for agreed together is the word from which we get our English word symphony. Their symphony, their harmony, their being of one heart and mind was set against the truth and love of the spirit, and it was a mockery of the unity that accompanies the filling of the spirit, which we've read in our passage earlier. They had agreed to test the spirit of the Lord, which means they consciously decided. Uh, they knew what they were doing. They wanted to see how much they could get away with. Right? They knew they shouldn't be deceiving the church, yet they went ahead and did it anyway, thinking for whatever reason that God wasn't going to do anything about it and that in the end they'd get what they really wanted was the, the praise of men. So, put down your pencils, eyes up front. <laughs> there are folks in the church who, like Ananias, put on a show for everyone in order to appear more generous or more virtuous, more spiritual, more chaste, more respectable than they actually are. And there are people in the church who, like Sapphira, lie to cover up their sins so that people don't think about them as badly as they deserve. There are even couples or whole families in the church who consciously and verbally agree together to bury the truth and to erect a false exterior in order to get love and admiration instead of humiliation. 
And we all need to realize that when we do this, we're striking at the vitals of the church. We're denying our sin. We're denying the relational effects of our sin. We're pretending that we deserve God's favor or that we deserve each other's favor. And we're dismantling the true unity that comes with, uh, with real intimacy and real transparency. We better all get straight in our minds that this kind of hypocrisy in the church is what God hates with a vengeance. He's going to defend his church because he loves her. Because the church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is absolutely great cause for fear, right? Great fear, as the text says, as it says it was the church's reaction in verses 5 and 11. And fear here is actually where we get the word phobia, right? which can mean awe and respect when applied to God, and it can just as easily have a connotation of just terror, mortal terror. This is uh, theophobia. It's the fear of the Lord, and we should all have it. But let me say this. I think we all have some kind of fear of God already. It's just the kind that makes you want to hide your sins better. Instead, we need a good fear of God at work in our hearts more regularly, more consistently, so that we make the connections between our motives and our actions and the effects they have in the church and with regard to God. We need to be honest and transparent and confess our sins to God and to one another. And we want to be more like Barnabas, who actually loved people, who was truly generous, not for the sake of the reputation that it earned him. How does that happen? Well, I skipped a verse early on in the text when Luke was describing the effect that the Spirit had on the community. When they were filled with the Spirit, This is what happens in verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Peterson says that the remarkable point about this verse is the implication that it was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the early Christians to such generosity not specifically preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from leaders to share possessions, the gospel message about God's grace in Christ inspired a culture of self-giving in love. The Holy Spirit, working through the gospel of grace, is the only hope that people like you and me have to becoming less like Ananias and Sapphira and more like Barnabas, better yet, more like Jesus. The gospel says that God is holy and that his wrath abides on those who are unholy, who are set in rebellion against him, who are suppressing his truth in unrighteousness. The gospel says that this holy God who kills self-exalting liars like Ananias and Sapphira, this holy God knows you inside and out, and there's no running from him. And the gospel says that this same God sent his son into the world to live a holy life, the only person who's ever done so, 
the only person who's ever fully pleased God. And the gospel says that this holy God killed his son instead of you. And the gospel says that God loves life better than death. So he raised his son Jesus from the dead. As the guarantee that all those who confess their faults, who repent of their sins, who ask for mercy, who trust in Christ, will be fully accepted by this holy God. You don't have to manage or manipulate your reputation in the sight of anyone. Great grace rests upon you. Jesus has freely offered you his reputation. And he's taken yours on himself along with the death curse you deserve. The way to not be Ananias or Sapphira is to come clean with God. To acknowledge how you've tried to manage your reputation and to humbly trade in your reputation for the reputation of Jesus Christ. The joyful sense of God's acceptance, of God's love that faith in the gospel brings is then what compels us to be more like Barnabas, more like Jesus himself. So ask God to pour out his love on you through the Holy Spirit, to to fill your heart with the truth of the gospel so that you can stop living for yourself and start giving yourself to other people so that you can stop pretending to be something that you're not and start glorifying God more for his grace in your life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do humbly confess that we don't deserve your favor, and yet we rejoice with thanksgiving that you have set your love on us in an unshakable way through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who sacrificed himself to provide us a place in heaven with you. And so we acknowledge who we are before you. We pray that you'd help us to overcome any kind of fear that we have of you or of other people that makes us unwilling to expose ourselves to, to you or to them. I pray that you'd help us to live in honesty and full transparency with one another because we know that truly it's only in this that we have uh, real communion, real intimacy with you and with one another. We pray this, um, this kind of intimacy and transparency would characterize your church, especially Uh, Ascension Presbyterian Church. We pray that it would characterize us to the glory of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.